Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hi, this is Steve. One of the things we do on The Cinephiles is what we call the play-by-play. This is the chronological journey through the film where we try to give you some sense of what is going on in the story. Often these include descriptions of life and death struggles, important decisions, emotional confrontations, true love, and sometimes true tragedy. In other words, the events of most films are, by necessity, pretty dramatic, and the play-by-play naturally reflects that. However, when it came to the remains of the day, the play-by-play was almost entirely devoid of drama. Where's the emotion in left-behind dustbins, the, the cleanliness of the alcove by the breakfast room, a book of sentimental love stories, or the words, yes, I'm perfectly all right, in response to a question of concern? And yet, despite the staid, intentionally professional exterior, the interior life of the characters in the remains of the day are as vibrant emotionally complex, and ultimately tragic, as just about any film we've covered. In the end, it's the incredible performances of Emma Thompson and Anthony Hopkins, the delicate direction of James Ivory, and Richard Robbins's gorgeous score that managed to convey a universe of emotion through actions so subtle as to be almost non-existent. So if you still haven't seen this brilliant film, you need to take a journey to cinephiles.net where you can buy or stream Remains of the Day along with every other film we've ever reviewed. And if you happen to support the show on patreon.com slash the cinephiles, right now you could be listening to a deep discussion on the recent revelations about Ray Fisher's experiences with Joss Whedon and Warner Brothers on the film Justice League. These are serious, complicated topics, and I even bring up some of my own experiences and how my perspective on these issues continues to evolve. So, that's Ray Fisher on Patreon and the conclusion of Remains of the Day this Friday on The Cinephiles. Still, there are times when I think what a terrible mistake I've made with my life. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we all have these thoughts from time to time. Hello and welcome back to The Cinephiles, where we continue our exploration of The Remains of the Day. Where we left off, Mr. Stevens had just compartmentalized the death of his father in order to do his duty as a butler. Now, in the present day, he drives into a small town, stops at a market to pick up a letter, and when the clerk asks him where he's from, he replies, Darlington. Rings a bell. Wasn't there a, a Lord Darlington? Some sort of Nazi got us in the war, they say. And he totally denies it. Yeah. I didn't work for that Lord. I'm the butler at Darlington Hall, and my employer is Mr. Lewis, an American gentleman. This is like Christ. It's like Peter denying Christ. You know what wow. I'm saying? It's a really yeah. interesting moment. Well, and it comes and up more than once. And it comes up more than once. My first reaction was, wow, that's that's a crazy metaphor. But my second reaction is actually I totally agree because Peter's whole identity is Christ, is based on Christ. That is the most important. So Because 
What Stevens is denying here isn't just Lord Darlington. He is denying the key. We just saw his, what I think is his most heroic moment, continuing to serve Lord Darlington at the time of his father's death. Yeah. Yeah. And now he is denying that identity, you know, 20 years later. Yep. I hear the young ladies from Germany have arrived. Yes, Lord, they're just outside. And in come these two girls and he tries to speak German to them and he's very nice to them. Um, and then we hear that they're going to work there. It's like, well, this is odd. And then these beautiful cars pull up and we have more servants and more lords. And, and we also see these guys dressed in black shirts. And probably most Americans don't know this, but there were the black shirts in England and they were pro-fascist, anti-Semitic. Yeah, connected to a bunch of people in government and, you know, not good guys. Gentlemen, you speak of Jews and gypsies, Negroes, so on and so forth. But one has to regard the racial laws of the fascists as a sanitary measure, much overdue in my opinion. And the Lord there, who's the guy who I think is Sir Jeffrey, who's has the black shirts with him, says, you cannot run a country without a penal system. We call them prisons. They call them concentration camps. And in the midst of this, he's also asking if the soup is, you know, has meat in it. And it's mm-hmm. just, and, and they talk about labor. And he says, believe me, no workers strike in Germany and everyone's kept in line. <laughs> and then yeah. no wonder this country is going down the drain. But where have I heard this before? You know, yeah. it, it's the same same arguments every generation, every generation. Oh, no wonder the country's going to shit because of this, because of the drug, the hippies. Uh, no wonder the country's going to shit because of these kids. They don't pay attention. They're out there, you know, doing coke and, and watching 80s movies and glow sticks. It's every... Wait, can we do that? Yeah, well, no, not anymore. But like in those days, I mean, you know, every generation has a complaint about the previous generation, man. That's just the way it always is. And it's always, well, you know... Uh, but I don't think this one is generational. I, you don't, I think, you don't think we're talking about foreign people coming and taking our jobs or people of color. You know, We're doing that now. We, we do it every generation. Oh, we try so, to, to uh, what is it, scapegoat immigrants or religious people, people of a certain totally. religion or something. That's what I'm talking about, yeah. Right, but you were talking, you were saying, what I thought you were saying was more the this generation looking at the younger generation and what they're doing and judging them, which I think obviously is a thing that happens, but, but I don't think that's what's happening. I think it's more the second thing you said of yeah, sca- yeah. scapegoating because this is about labor and, you know, rich people. Yeah. And of course you have, and it's so funny to, you know, to be the, the butlers being invisible allows these people to say terrible things about oh, yeah. the lower classes right in front of them because they don't think of them as human. Um, Good point. We're in maybe the most casual scene we ever see Stevens. He's mm-hmm. sitting with Mr. Benz, who is another butler who has yep. arrived, Tim Pickett Smith, and they're listening to music and they're smoking and they're having a couple of drinks. And Mr. Benz is like, it's, you've made yourself a very cozy little nest here. <laughs> and they talk about whether or not he's contented. In my philosophy, Mr. Ben, a man cannot call himself well contented until he has done all he can to be of service to his employer. Of course, this assumes that one's employer is a superior person, not only in rank or wealth, but in moral stature. So his identity is based on the fact that Lord Darlington is a superior person. Yeah. I think this idea 
and we see it throughout our society as well. Yeah. That rich people are in some way superior. Yeah. That they, this is social Darwinism, that they got there for a reason, that they mm -hmm. deserve wealth. Mm -hmm. And it's like certainly Bill Gates or Steve Jobs or, you know, whatever a person, you know, creates a company, then they have shown that they have in impressive abilities. I don't oh, think sure. to the level of, you know, Jeff Bezos richness right now. I think that's insane. But right. but but the kids, like if you're the fourth generation Rockefeller, yeah, you didn't earn that money. Nope. And yet they still walk around thinking they're superior people. Mm-hmm. What do they call that? You, uh, you know, uh, think they hit a triple when they woke up on third base, that kind of thing. Yep, absolutely. That's the that's the expression. Well, and the other thing too is, Lord Darlington, I'm sure went to Eton and Oxford and had the privilege of the finest education, of the finest things, of the finest everything, mm -hmm. and so he is again on third base. He has yep. he is superior in many ways to the people that didn't have the advantages that he had. Yeah. But the only reason that's true is because he had the advantages he had. <laughs> exactly. You know. Yeah. Exactly. Like like you know, I was very fortunate that that and did i work hard yeah but i also was i was like they've just outlawed that or not outlawed but there are all these universities not taking the sats yeah right now because of the pandemic and i would not have gotten into berkeley if i didn't have high sat scores hmm. and part of why i had high sat scores is my parents paid for me to take an sat training thing right you know so like the fact that my parents could afford to pay for that thing is part of why i got into berkeley does right. that mean that I didn't deserve to go to Berkeley? No, I mean, I worked hard and mm -hmm. I got into Berkeley. But yeah. it means that someone just as talented and smart as me didn't get into Berkeley because their parents couldn't afford to pay for that thing. Right. You know, right. that's privilege. Yeah. And Lord Darlington has way more than an SAT prep prep class, you know, backing <laughs> him up. That's true. Very, very true. Um, <laughs> and in your opinion, what's going on up there as moral stature, does it? And Stevens doesn't want to hear any of that at all. He's listening to the music. And he says, to listen to the gentleman's conversations would distract me from my work. Mm -hmm. Is that true? Does he not listen or does he listen and chooses not to hear? I think um, Stevens has heard every single line that's been yeah. uttered in that house. That's what I think, too. He's just choosing not to be a part of it. Yeah. Then in comes Miss Kenton with some fresh soda for their drinks. Mm. And they ask her to stay and she, she's, you know, leaves and Tim Pickett Smith watches her walk away. Good looking woman. Um, and then this moment is so interesting because we hear that, that she had worked with Mr. Ben at some other place and that the place wasn't the same as soon as she left. Mm -hmm. And then Stevens, who's had a few drinks, yeah. says, I'd be lost without her. He's really revealing it. Yeah. And then, the, and then in the next moment, he kind of makes it more, you know, a first-rate housekeeper is essential in a house like this one. <laughs> but that's not what I think he said. No, I think no. he wasn't saying the house would be lost without her, or she's a great housekeeper. Yeah. I think he was saying I'd be lost without her. Yeah, he's talking about himself. Absolutely. The German girls, which we find out, of course, are Jewish girls, are working in the fireplace as the Lord walks by. Um, and he is reading a book, which we hear in voiceover, that is a very logical and very detailed explanation for pure anti-Semitism. Yeah, yeah. It, and I don't know what the book is. I don't think that's from Mein Kampf. Mm -hmm. um, but it is just, you know, as a Jewish person listening to it, it's just ugh, yeah. horrible. Stevens, 
We have some refugee girls on the staff at the moment, I believe. We do, my lord. Two housemaids, Elsa and Emma. You'll have to let them go, I'm afraid. So, first of all, he doesn't say that I want to let them go. He says, you have to let them go. Right. This is just like the birds and the bees. Yep. It's an awkward thing, and it's like, you have to go do them. It's regrettable, Stevens, but we we have no choice. You've got to see the whole thing in context. I have the well-being of my guests to consider. And Stevens, to his little bit of credit, says, may I say they work extremely well. He tries to push back a little bit. He tries a little pushback. Yeah. Stop it from happening. Senses this isn't a right thing, you know, and but uh, and maybe influenced by having had that conversation with uh, Mr. Bentz, as you said, maybe yeah. that uh, with a younger. By the way, that's a younger butler. Right. Uh, and, you know, as I said, things are changing in the world current, uh, w- uh, that this film takes place. And maybe having had that conversation, he feels the need to, he feels the little impetus to step and push back a little bit. But of course, James Fox shuts it down. I'm sorry, Stevens, but I've looked into this matter very carefully. There are larger issues at stake. I'm sorry, but there it is. They're Jews. We just finished a great episode of Falcon and Winter Soldier. Mm. And there's an interaction between Sam Wilson and the new Captain America. And Captain America is like trying to convince him to be on his side, to fight with him against what's going on in the in the show. And he says, you know, I'm trying to be the best I can be. And it would really help if I had Cap's wingman by my side. And that's the mo- and And, and uh, Sam says in that moment, Ugh, it's always that last line. And it's yeah. true, right? We've seen that in interactions. We've seen that in movies. And in this moment, the same thing. It's always that last line. Well, Stevens, they're Jews. He's been talking all around it and then yeah. finally puts it on the table blatantly. And it's uh, terrible. You know? Yeah. It, yeah. Well, and in that whole, like, you know, honorable man thing. <coughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, and it's also, it is also, by the way, in addition to being anti-Semitic, it's a class thing because mm. these are poor people. You know, these are servants. They're not worthy. In addition to being Jewish, he doesn't think of them the way he thinks of his German friend who killed himself. Great point. You know, doesn't think about putting them out, having them suffering to figure out how to pay their bills or whatever. Why? Because there's no personal connection to them. So what matters? It doesn't matter what happens to them. We just need them out. You know, yeah, you're right. It's pick and choose. Yeah. I'm amazed that you can stand there as if you were just discussing orders for the larder. I simply can't believe it. You're saying that Elsa and Irma are to be dismissed because they're Jewish. And Stevens, who is, again, it's his identity is to serve the Lord. The Lord made the decision. Yeah. That's it. We can't question it. And Emma, Emma Thompson's fantastic, of course, and says... I'm telling you, Mr. Stevens, if you dismiss my girls tomorrow, it will be wrong. A sin. Has any sin ever was one? And this gets into another point that's going to come up much more later in the movie steven says there are many things you and i don't understand in this world of today his lordship understands fully it's not just an abdication of status or that i am inferior to this person in terms of status uh, or serve them it is we can't know stuff the higher classes know things that we can't know mm-hmm. that is the position that he is taking yeah so this this even though he he knows that this is wrong, his or he thinks it seems wrong to him, but the Lord must know more than me. Mr. Stevens, I warn you, if those girls go, I shall leave this house. 
And now we have an interview with a new person to be a new maid. And it is Lena Hetty. Yes. Young Lena Hetty. 20 years old at the time. <laughs> and Stevens thinks she's unsuitable. She doesn't have good references. She doesn't have as much experience. She's not suitable. She'll do well. I'll see to it. And Stevens, and again, this is such a dick move at this moment. <laughs> he is smiling because he thinks he has something on her. He says, didn't you say you were leaving because of the German girls? Hmm. And I think it's like seeing that she didn't live up to the, the choice she made yeah. makes it okay the choice he made. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Battle um, again for pointing out the faults of the other. You know, exactly. This, this eternal battle. Between and then this is the... Which, Miss Kenton is the only person who expresses real emotions yeah. and truth in this movie. She says, I'm not leaving. Oh, I have nowhere to go. I have no family. I'm a coward. It, it's such an admission of truth. It is saying, I firmly believe this. I still firmly believe this. And I'm scared. And this is my home. And I cannot leave. And again, it's like dad dying. It's like you, someone opens up emotionally. You should join them on some level you know what i mean yeah yep yep absolutely all i see out in the world is loneliness and it frightens me that's all my high principles are worth mr stevens and he takes it in and he says miss kenton you mean a great deal to this house and stevens struggles for his words he says you're extremely important to this house miss kenton and what he's saying what he wants to be saying is you're important to me mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but he can't say that yep and she know, and and this is what's interesting. So, how much they each know the other's feelings <laughs> is a really complicated question to me. That's a great question, though, right? Is how much how, how uh, are each of them reading between the lines the whole time? Um, and neither one seems to have the strength or the guts to put it all on the table and straight up say it i mean emma comes close yeah. emma comes real close when she says why don't you ever just say what you feel right she pushes him but it doesn't achieve the result she was hoping for which is him finally like exploding at her and saying what he really feels um but yeah neither one of them wants to really put it on the table what's actually happening and, it, and they both participate in the game which is why i think they're both complicit in this relationship and the way it's built sadly I yeah, I, I, I think like in this moment, she says, am I in a very vulnerable way? And he says in a very quiet voice, yes. Yeah. And they're like, they're not as close as they're going to be in a later scene. Right. But right. they're like just one little push and they might say how they feel. Yep. Yep. But you don't. But and this is the interesting thing is saying how you feel is a scary thing to do. Of course it is. Because you risk rejection. And yeah. and and in this environment, it's really scary. Yeah. And Stevens in particular is, you know, Miss Kenton has come, she's crying. She's expressed that she's a coward. She's expressed a lot of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And but taking that last step, they don't have the courage to do. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. And we changed the subject. Yeah. Well, if you're going to hire her, then let's call her back in. And the yeah. only thing we hear about it is no gentleman callers. That's right. That's the right. big agreement because, well, and this, again, it relates to the movie. What is the very first conversation that uh, Miss Kenton and Mr. Stevens have? 
when people get into fall in love in a house that ruins everything. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and what is this that they say to her? No gentleman callers. Right. Because yeah. falling in love is going to ruin everything. Incredible shot of sunset and the car drives up into frame and runs out of gas. Mm-hmm. It's a spectacular sun shot with the red sun in the background. Unbelievable. Um, and we cut to a pub mm-hmm. where obviously Stevens has gotten there on his drive and what is happening in the pub? Everyone believes because they saw him in this beautiful car and he's wearing a beautiful suit that he must be a gentleman of some yeah. kind. Yeah. And this is, <laughs> it's, it's even more painful in the book. It's, it, I think it's clearer in the book why he doesn't actually say anything. It is harder right, in fact in the book. Uh, in yeah. the book, he's not at a pub. He's at someone's house and neighbors keep just showing up because they hear there's a gentleman there. <laughs> um, and there's this guy who's kind of the political guy there whose name mm-hmm. is Smith. And he's expressing opinions about how all the people should be able to be involved in politics and all of our opinions matters and the people have to speak. And this is in direct contrast to the previous scene a few scenes ago with uh, Mr. Ben, where yeah. he's and with uh, with Miss Kenton, both of which where he says, we don't know enough. We have to yeah. follow the important people. And this guy, Mr. Smith, is saying our opinion matters. Yeah. And they start asking him what it was his involvement in politics. And it, everything he says is perfectly true. Yes. He did meet Mr. Churchill. He came to the house. I was involved around supporting things that had to do with foreign affairs. It's all true. He's just not saying that he was the butler. Right. And then uh, Dr. Carlisle shows up, who is the one educated man in the town. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they say, oh, this guy knew Mr. Churchill and Mr. Eaton. And Carlisle looks at him and goes, really? He's immediately skeptical. I think skeptical he knows, knows right away. Yeah. And that's uh, Pip Torrens, who is just mm. an incredible actor. Uh, he's bald now, so he, all his uh, fil- all his TV shows and films that he does over the last few years, he's bald, so people might not recognize him as a young man here. But it was it blew my mind to see him uh, show up. I totally forgot uh, he was in this movie. He's in Paul Dark and so many great British oh. stuff. So yeah, he's a fantastic uh, actor. I didn't recognize him at all. Yeah. Um, and it's that night, and he ends up because he's staying at the pub, and they show him to a room, and it ends up. This is the owner's son's room who was killed at Dunkirk. And Stephen sits down surrounded by pictures and the things of this boy that died in the war, a war that his boss is somewhat responsible for in some way that he supported. Yeah. That he was just lying about downstairs in the pub a few minutes before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Surrounded by it all. Yeah. And then, and it's, again, these scenes are all linked because we've heard him say to Mr. Ben that the point is to follow someone with good moral character and to trust them. And Ben going, well, are you sure you trust them? And then the right. scene with Miss Kenton saying when they're firing the Jewish servants, like, hey, we have to trust our job. We can't know enough. Right. The scene in the pub with Mr. Smith saying we can know enough. We we should be involved. And now Stevens is serving some guys in tuxes and they're talking about the common man and you know are they entitled to give an opinion exactly what we've been talking about yeah and they say mr spencer would like a word with you stevens and he asks a ridiculous com- complicated question about debt situation in america and the gold standard and what do you think and he says i'm sorry sir but i'm unable to be of assistance in this matter 
Oh dear, what a pity. And then he asks him another complicated question about arms agreements and Bolsheviks and, and Stevens takes it in yeah. and says, I'm sorry, sir. I'm unable to be of assistance in this matter. Yeah. Yeah. And you cut and you watch James Fox, who is a great awkward listener and he knows what's happening is wrong. Yes. But he doesn't stop it, Steve. Yep. He lets his servant be embarrassed by his richer friends. Why? Because at his core, he knows that they are lesser than him, so he doesn't feel the imperative. And this is a man, I would argue, who has been in his life longer than this German friend who shot himself in a rail car. And right. yet he's not willing to step up to protect his, I would argue, an important person in his life um, as these men uh, make fun of him and use him for sport uh, to advance their stupid notions about how important how important it is for them to be in charge of politics and not regular people, which is, of course, juxtaposed to what Lewis said, how these people, right. the, the gentlemen exactly. who are sitting in this room right now, have no business being in politics. So it's funny that they can subject Stevens to it, but are get upset when Lewis subjects them to the same kind of treatment. It's funny. Well, and it's and the questions he's asking are totally unfair. It's yes. like, you know, yeah. just because someone doesn't know like very complicated details doesn't mean their opinion doesn't matter. Right. You know, and there's a whole bunch of things these lords don't know. Like if you had said, if Stevens had said, well, excuse me, my lord, if we had to serve 37 guests and we need to have yeah. these foods, how many <laughs> servants do we need and how long will it take to prepare the thing and organize the thing and where will you get the food and blah, blah, blah. The yeah. lords would have no idea. It's a great you point, know? dude. Yep. Like, like the, the, the wealthy person has no understanding of the experience of the poor person. Right. You know? And so how can, and yet the wealthy person or powerful person in, in all societies, including ours, feel perfectly comfortable making decisions for those people, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? So, so, yeah. and I love when, when the third question is coming and you see Stevens, he knows yeah. it's going to come again. Yeah. He knows that he just has to stand there and take it. And it's, yeah. it's brave and sad in this weird way, yeah. watching him prepare himself to take this. And he again says, I'm sorry, sir. I am unable to be of assistance in any of these matters. He's holding the cup again, like he does at the beginning of the film mm. to the Lords, just standing there until they take. So he has to stand there and take it, you know, it's just and, the same thing. And this, you know, asshole yeah. goes this, I have now proven why democracy doesn't make any sense. Right. That's basically what he's saying. Right. These people's opinions, you know, how could we possibly, except the opinions of a millions of people like him. Thank you, Stevens. Thank you, my lord. Thank you, sir. What a jerk. Yep. Horrible. We're back in the present driving with the doctor who had offered him a ride. And he says, I say, I hope you don't think me very rude, but you aren't a manservant of some kind. And I think Stevens is relieved. Yeah. You know, yeah. He said, you know, and he says, yes, I was a butler and that he's, at, at Darlington Hall, and the doctor says, "Oh, wasn't Lord Darlington? Did he have something to do with appeasement?" Mm. And first thing he says is, "Sorry, sir, I never knew that Lord Darlington. My employer is an American gentleman, Mr. Lewis." And we hear a little bit more about Lord Darlington. He made deals with Hitler and helped cause the war. And there was some big libel suit. And Stevens pretends he doesn't know anything about them. Yeah. And they're filling up the tank, the tank of the car with gas. And Stevens says. I must confess that I failed to tell you the truth. I did know Lord Darlington, and I can declare that he was a truly good man, 
gentleman through and through to whom I'm proud to have given my best years of service. He doesn't say that in the book. He says no. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and this is why the character in the book is more painful. Yeah. Right. Right. You know, than this character, this character at least admits a tr the truth on some yeah. level. Yeah. Yeah. And we get in the same thing of the doctor trying to figure out, well, did you share his opinions? Yeah. And he goes, well, I was his butler. I was there to serve him, not to agree or disagree. Right. By the way, that one of the things Ishiguro said is that we are all butlers. He says, it's it's tempting to all of us to say, let's leave it to someone upstairs. I'm just trying to do my job. I'm just trying to protect my life. This is so funny you say this, Steve, because uh, this is something that Scarlett Johansson is getting a lot of pushback on because uh, she said recently, people get upset when actors don't have a point of view about politics. The thing is, I didn't choose to be a politician. I'm an actor. And a lot of people came back at her for that because of what it indicates that you're not willing to use your platform to help people who you might deem as less fortunate. And she said, I don't think actors have obligations to have a public role in society. Some people want to, but the idea that you're obligated to because you're in the public eye is unfair. You didn't choose to be a politician. You're an actor. Your job is to reflect our experience to ourselves. Your job is to be a mirror for an audience, to be able to have an empathetic experience through art. That is what your job is. Well, whatever my political views are, all that stuff, I feel most successful when people can sit in a theater at home and disappear into a story or a performance and see pieces of themselves or are able to connect with themselves through this experience of watching this performance or story or interaction between actors or whatever it is. And they're affected by it and they're thinking about it and they feel something. You know, they have an emotional reaction to it, good, bad, uncomfortable, validating, whatever. That's my job. The other stuff is not my job. And so... A lot of people were really upset about this and came back at her. And although she has, I think, a valid point to make in that you shouldn't be required to talk about your politics all the time. The other side of it is, well, if you have a platform and you've been like uh, played roles that are whitewashed, uh, we're up for a role where you're not an LGBTQ or a transgender person and you took the role, but then turned it down when I mean, but then uh, gave up the role when there was a backlash. You know, I think she's one of these people that's found herself on the wrong side of these situations. And now she's pushing back against some of the criticism about it. You know, so I don't know. I, I, I always feel like if you have a public platform, you should use it for good. But then again, not everyone feels that way. So I, I, I'm actually mostly with her. Yeah. I think, and, and you know me, I want, you know, any sure, bit of sure, public sure. platform I have, I'm going to say my stuff. But that's who I am. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I don't judge whether or not she's a good person based on whether or not she uses her platform for, for, for those things, because also she might suck at it. You know what I mean? Like yeah, it might not be her bag at all. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, not everybody is supposed to, you know, we don't need people who don't understand anything about politics talking about politics just because they have a easy, platform. Easy. You easy know? Now you're in the room with Stevens. Calm down there, Steve. Calm down. A bit. <laughs> um, but 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 it's also what choices does she make in her life, you right, know, right. like because I do believe with great power comes great responsibility and that the richer you are and the more famous you are, the more your actions affect more people. Yes. So so the choices of parts that she takes is one of those things. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like it, it, there, I am certain there are some famous people who say nothing and give millions of dollars away to charity. Oh, yeah. For good causes. You know what I mean? And I don't need those people to get up on a stage. 
Right. That doesn't mean they're not good people. Agreed. Um, Agreed. A thousand yeah. percent. I mean, that's and that's. She's, and she's married yeah. to Colin Jost, who's very outspoken politically on Saturday Night Live. So. Well, there you go. I say I don't want to be a bore, but I'm intrigued. I mean, where do you stand on all that? If a mistake was to be made, wouldn't you rather have made your own? And this is related to everything we've been hearing. It's what he said to Mr. Ben. It's what he said to Miss Kenton. It's what Mr. Smith was saying in the pub. It's the guy that was for asking him the questions. It's all this thing is, does your opinion matter? Right. Does expressing yourself matter? See, in a very small way, I did make my own mistake. But I might still have a chance to set mine right. In fact, I'm on my way to try and do so now. What's interesting about this movie and about that line is this movie is about the big and the small. It's yeah. about the political and the personal. And in both cases, he did not stand up. Yeah. Both cases, he did not express an opinion. And in both cases, bad things happened. Mm -hmm. And he can't write the one where he was in the room of this dead kid that got killed in the war that his, his Lord was partially responsible for. Right. But he's now in the car to try to write the other. Right. Maybe. And we see the change in him as a character because he was willing to admit to uh, to the to that doctor his service to he would have I mean him lying to people is so out of character for Stevens already like yes will he kind of not tell the full like what he's fully feeling about something sure but flat out lying or letting people assume something different about him is the uncharacteristic thing but it's clear that he feels shame you know for having given that so the, the when he talks to the doctor there's this fill in the petrol it's almost like a release this yeah. emotional release you know he's able to tell him and it was because he was kind about asking him about being a a, 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 a footman or a servant uh and so he's able to divulge it and the doctor takes it well and yeah. and asks these questions and is see seeking to understand more than judge you know and you can't uh, that's a good thing i think um and certainly stevens uh, surrenders some of his feelings about it yeah well, and this is these are all the little ways that makes the movie Stevens easier to deal with and more sympathetic than the book Stevens, because the book Stevens doesn't make this admission. The book Stevens, it does make perfect sense while he's lying to all the people, because you see him, you're in his head, you hear him lying yeah. to himself throughout the whole book. Yeah. And it's just, it's to me, it's like the difference between um, uh, Don Quixote and Man of La Mancha. So in Man of La Mancha, there's this crazy guy who thinks he's a knight and thinks windmills are dragons and thinks this prostitute is a princess. And even though he's kind of crazy, because that's how he sees the world, it helps the world. And we're kind of inspired by his beautiful view of the world. In the book by Cervantes, it's all making a joke of this guy. Yeah, It's all that this guy is a fool. You know, there's nothing heroic about it. It's all about making fun of and tearing down knights and shining armor and all that stuff and saying that's all bullshit. Yeah. So the Cervantes book is more painful and darker than the Man of La Mancha musical. And this is it's not quite as far away because this is very much following the book. But it's still that book. I, I've read it now twice. Mm -hmm. and I don't ever want to read it again. It's a yeah. fantastic book, but it just hurts the yeah. whole way through. <laughs> John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap... 
or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. And when we come back to the past, we have one of my all-time favorite images of service in this house, which is ironing the newspaper. Ah, yes. The ultimate in servitude, for sure. Ironing the newspaper. Make sure it's crisp. You know what I wonder about that? Does Lord Darlington even know that newspapers come wrinkled? Uh, That's a good question. I'm sure he's been out and about in the world and seen wrinkled newspapers. And so it's made him even more thankful for ironed newspapers, I'm sure. It's just so ridiculous (laughs) to me. Stevens is opening up the the curtains and there's Lord Darlington. And he asks about the Jewish girls and even says, One would like to do something for them. It was wrong what occurred. I'm sorry about it. Very sorry. Yeah, so we see him changing his tune as things are getting worse and worse. And he's seeing what we assume he's seeing or sensing that the German situation is not what he thought, that the Nazis are not as clean as he had imagined. And this atonement of his perhaps is not going as well as he had anticipated. Except he doesn't say I was wrong. He says it was wrong. It was what, wrong, right. It was wrong what occurred, as if this thing yeah. just happened. Right. And he's sorry about it, not sorry about what I did. There's this, <clears throat> and what's really funny is it just occurred to me that there is, it's almost like he's professionally distancing himself from his actions in the yes. same way that Stevens is distancing himself to all his culpability in all of the decisions that happen around him. Yes, as a good executive would, distancing themselves from their business. <laughs> can't imagine what you might be referring to there. Um, And we're in the conservatory and he's talking to Miss Kenton. And he says, the Lord asked about the Jewish girls. He wondered where they were. He said it was wrong to dismiss them. And there's a reaction. And then he says this line. I thought you'd like to know because I remember you were as distressed as I was about it. (laughs) Right. And Miss Kenton immediately shoots back uh, as you were. As I recall, you were absolutely fine with it. 
so calling him out on it. Uh, once again, here Stevens repeating what his Lord just did, uh, removing himself from the situation or distancing himself or trying to change the point of view of what actually happened in order to keep himself clean in the process. I really, Miss Kenton, that is most unfair. Of course I was upset, very much so. And what's so, it's funny because I've watched the movie many times and I've watched mm -hmm. the commentary track. And in the moment that Lord Lord Darlington is saying to do this in the library, yeah, you can see that Stevens is against the idea. He knows that it's wrong. Yes. He but says by, to, they're good yeah. workers. They're, yeah. they're, they're on time, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But by the time he's talking to Miss Kenton, any yeah. sign that it's wrong is totally gone. Yes. So yeah. she's 100% right. And I love what she says. She says, I wish you had told me at the time. It would mm -hmm. have helped a great deal to know you felt the same way. Right. And then this line, I'm certain, is not in the book. Why, Mr. Stevens? Why do you always have to hide what you feel? Yeah. And this is, this is the break we've been building to in the film. This real honest, finally someone says it. Why do you have to hide what you feel? And it's her calling him out, essentially saying this is the reason why we have been unable to move forward as a possible couple, why this house it has the problems that it does, because you do not speak your feelings, you know, and it's, it's such an interesting line uh, right at this moment. And he is about to say something. We never yeah. get to know what he's going to say because Lena Headey enters mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then he watches her go and she watches him watching her go. <laughs> Look at that smile on your face. Hmm? What smile? You don't like to have pretty girls on the staff, I've noticed. Might it be that our Mr. Stevens fears distraction? Can it be that our Mr. Stevens is flesh and blood after all and cannot trust himself? First of all, do you think that's true? Do you think yes, a thousand percent, a thousand percent think it's true, um, and you know yeah, how she carries on needling him about it uh, further proves that it's true. When his reaction to the, her needling, them walking together in this moment, I think is the happiest, kind of most fun thing in the film of their relationship. Even though what he's saying isn't terribly nice, you know what I'm doing, Miss Kenton. I'm placing my thoughts elsewhere while you chatted away. Then why is that guilty smile still on your face? Oh, it's not a guilty smile. Simply amused by the sheer nonsense you sometimes talk. And again, this is light and flirtatious and yeah. kind of fun. It is a guilty smile. You can hardly bear to look at her. That's why you didn't want to take her on. She was too pretty. Well, you must be right, Miss Kenton. All bizarre. <laughs> this feels even though he's being condescending and dismissive in a way mm -hmm. it's f also fun and charming and you could tell that he likes her like his 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 he's happy in this moment don't you think yes i and well happy yes and i mean he's being called out though but totally. so there's a little bit of playfulness with her but it's also done to mask his guilt so if this is possibly happy. I don't know, to be honest with you, but I think it's, I think it's ironic to be happy right after you're, you know, speaking about an incorrect thing that you were complicit in. Yeah, that's true. It's like a way to kind of absolve yourself and not really deal with the seriousness of what actually happened and your role in it. So I don't know if happy is the right word. I would say he is trying to be blissfully unaware of his role in all of this 
And Miss Kenton's playfulness kind of accentuates that or gives him even more impetus to act this way because she's not she's not coming after him about it in a very strong way. So she's kind of letting him off the hook. Well, and it's funny because here, you know, here's what it is, is that in an entire movie where he has rejected any emotionalness at all, mm-hmm. rejected the flowers coming into his room, rejected the emotion of his father, the fact that he's just being kind of pleasant you know, yeah. in this moment yeah, true, is just true. such a relief. Um, by the way, uh, Emma Thompson says that Anthony Hopkins, who she refers to as Tony, is her mm-hmm. favorite acting relationship in her career. No surprise. It shows. Lo- yeah. And she says that this is what he would say. She says, Tony would say, let's not practice. Let's just see what happens. She said that if they just look at each other and listen, something would always happen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's so interesting, this thing that has happened throughout the cinephiles. We've had these directors who were rehearse, 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 and actors who wanted to run lines, run lines, run lines, and practice. And we've had these other actors is like, let's not, let's just, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. let's just do it and be in the moment. And it, it surprises me that Anthony Hopkins is the latter, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Cause he seems so refined and controlled and like he's chosen everything he's doing, but I don't know. This is, and this is the in- inherent thing here, isn't it? That we can be so deluded by someone who is acting so proper, acting so correctly, mm-hmm. acting, you know, ele- you know, conveying a certain level of status. They couldn't possibly be, horrific or terrible or make mistakes even Mm. if it's played by someone like anthony hopkins who we revere and respect and there's this insidious racism behind the jewish decision as well but there's this insidious thing of not calling out the racism when it happens not forcing people to confront the racism when it happens and this is carried on for generations in multiple countries of, uh, for centuries in multiple countries, uh, including ours. And this is, once again, oh, he speaks so properly. He handles himself so well. He could, He's so above it all. Uh, and in the end, he ends up being shamed by Darlington. He does not have a relationship with Miss Kenton that he could have had. And he is alone, an old man alone, working a job for uh, an American. You know, So all of these things uh, come to pass uh, as a result of his actions, but there's also some this is underlying stuff going on here that you have to catch as a viewer when you're watching films like this, you know? You just you just reminded me of the quote, and then I had to look up who actually said it, which is mm-hmm. the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Yes, of course. And that's Edmund Burke. I had to look right. up who actually said it. Um Charlie and the new maid, Lena Headey, are making out. Yes, they are. <laughs> and we've already heard the very beginning of the movie was bad stuff happens. Yeah, I think uh, Miss Kenton said, yes, the house will be at sixes and sevens mm-hmm. when there's relationships w- within the staff. Right. And Emma catches them. And as she walks away, you know, Charlie and I forget Lena Headey's character's name, yep. Ben Chaplin and Lena Headey, say, oh, she'll never understand. She's old, must be at least 30. <laughs> And Ben says, who do you think those cha- those pretty flowers are for? Right. Um, okay, we've arrived at the scene that totally wrecked me. Okay. Stevens is in his parlor. Mm. Curtains are closed. James Ivory didn't want too much light. He wanted it to feel close and claustrophobic. And he is reading a book when Emma Thompson em- enters. 
Mm-hmm. And what she says is when they first did the scenes, she couldn't get it right. She had problems. And what she finally figured out was that she can't, and I think this is a really interesting acting thought, and I'd love to hear what you think of it. She said, I was coming in with too much intention. Mm-hmm. What do you think that means? I think that's absolutely correct. There is a, what she's essentially referring to is I wanted to make the scene happen and make it very oh, uh, obvious what I was doing and what I wanted the result of the scene to be. Which is, of course, there in the lines, there in the interaction. So that's what she's essentially saying. I came in with too much of a force when this is a very, very subtle scene. Deftly subtle, even though every move echoes volumes. It is so subtle in how it progresses throughout the scene. So if she's too aggressive or she's too intentional, then the scene loses its subtle power which is what you want to get out of a scene like that. If it's overt, you lose the simplicity that you've spent the whole movie developing between these two people. You know, this is the most, this is the closest they come to consummating these feelings that have been building between them for the entire movie and their entire relationship. I I think that's totally right. And here's the thing I think of is having worked with and seen through teaching a lot of young actors they'll frequently come in and play the end of the scene. Right. You know, like the scene ends in the big fight. So they come in with the fight energy. And yeah. it's like, no, the, the character's not there yet. Like Miss Kenton at this moment, when she's walking into this room, she doesn't think anything is important is going to happen. Right. She's just walking into the room. And so she walks in knowing that this is an important scene with too much intention that ruins the scene. Mm-hmm. Here's what Anthony Hopkins, this was the advice he gave to her. He said, he told her, think of those afternoons where nothing's happening and the air is still and heavy, a fly buzzing in a window pane, nothing to be done, nothing needing to be done, and that yeah. stillness comes in at this moment. Mm-hmm. I think that is a beautiful bit. I mean, he's the actor, mm-hmm. but it is a beautiful bit of direction. It's just, this is how it feels. Yeah. This is how you feel. Yeah. yeah. So that when what happens happens, it's a surprise, as these things usually are when they do happen. What are you reading? A book. <laughs> it's what sort of book? It's a book, Miss Kenton. Book. And he, she reaches for it, and he pulls away. Mm-hmm. The vulnerability of Anthony Hopkins in this moment, mm-hmm. of just clutching this book, yeah. it's so small and it's so powerful, and she, it becomes flirtatious in this really strange way. Mm-hmm. What's the book? Are you shy about your book? No. Is it? And he literally backs himself into a corner. He almost collapses. His body mm-hmm. folds in upon itself. Is it racy? Racy? Are you reading a racy book? Do you think racy books are to be found on his lordship's shelves? And again, she asks to see the book. And he clutches it to her, his chest and says, Please leave me alone, Miss Kenton. Does he want her to leave him alone? Uh, yes, I think in in some measure, yes. <clears throat> in other measures, no. Um, but of course, as we've spoken about earlier in the in this in the first part, he is emotionally a child, and so um, this is him struggling, having the internal civil war within himself because she will destroy everything that he has so carefully constructed about his life and his world. 
So when he says, please leave me alone, he's not talking about the book. This is not about the book at all, as we all know. But he's also saying, please leave me alone because uh, I am afraid of what will happen if yes. I don't. You know? Yeah, that's what I, I do, feel. rather. Yeah. He says, this is my private time. You're invading it. Yeah. Which is precisely what he said to her, almost exactly what he said to her the first time she tried to bring flowers into this room. Right. I want to keep this room businesslike, free of distractions. Mm-hmm. This is my private place of work. You know, is that, and it's so, I'm going to say this thing. I don't know if I'll keep it in in the episode, but there is a sense of penetration is how I will put it in her entering into him, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, basically reversing the sexual male, female act. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and I don't know, it just, it sounds like a weird thing to say in such a, a restrained film. Right. Well, I don't think it's, I think you're correct. She's penetrating his force field. Yeah. She's penetrating his force field and he's allowing her to do it, by the way. He's, he could physically push her away. He could physically run to the end of the room. He could leave the room, but he doesn't. Uh, and he, it's because he is enticed by it. He's attracted by it. He is interested in it. He just doesn't have the strength to act on it. And so he feels uh stuck uh, yeah. emotionally and physically so and there's and there's nothing wrong with her finally taking making a move do you know what i'm saying she's making yeah. a move and i think that's allowed and he uh oh, and, and remember the hand comes so close to stroking her face when she's looking at the book and he doesn't and that's the moment and the moment yep. he doesn't is the moment the relationship changes it's over because she is putting herself out there in such a vulnerable way, uh, and he's rejected. He ends up rejecting her. She the ne- the next line I find so fascinating, which is she says, "Are you protecting me, or are you protecting me? Is that what you're doing? Would I be shocked? Would it ruin my character?" She's so flirty, and what I think is, I think she hopes that it is a racy book. I think just as in the previous scene, it was. Oh, are, do you not like pretty girls? Or do you fair distraction? Is our Mr. Stevens flesh and blood? If it's a racy book, then he is a human, a sexual creature, a person that she could have a relationship with, a person that is hiding something really interesting. Right. And she moves forward. She's very, very close. And if you watch Anthony Hopkins' eyes, he's looking at her mouth Yeah. in this moment. Yeah. And she literally has to pry his hands, his fingers off the book, like Anthony Hopkins, like Stevens had to pry his father's hands off of the mop right. earlier in the film. They're so close to each other. Yeah. And his hand, as you say, is right next to her face. Emma Thompson said she could feel the warmth of her, his hand <laughs> next to her face. Fantastic. And she looks at the book and she says, It's not scandalous at all. Just a sentimental old love story. And we're in this moment. They're so close to each other. This is the moment in most movies where people kiss. Yes, they would normally kiss. Yes. And I think he is a tiny breeze. If a breeze hit him in just the right way, he would kiss her. (laughs) That's how close he is Uh in this moment. I read these books, any books, to develop my command and knowledge of the English language. I read... To further my education, Miss Kenton. How many? How often do you think he reads romantic, silly, sentimental love stories? Um, I don't know. It's a good question. Maybe a lot. I think Maybe he reads them lot. all the time. 
Yeah. He reads them all the time. Yeah. And then he says, I really must ask you, please, not to disturb the few moments I have to myself. <laughs> That's like a slap in, my, slap in the face. Right. It's a rejection. It's a full-on totally. rejection. It's like I said, he rejects her at the end. Yeah. And she heads out very upset. Emma Thompson said, this scene was so intense. At the end of it, she was close to fainting on every take. Mm. Could barely catch her breath. <laughs> this scene, I remember seeing in the theater, and I was sobbing. I don't know why... It hits so hard to me. And maybe it's because I'm a restrained person too. Sure. You know, not I'm not emotionally terribly demonstrative. And so I relate a lot to Stevens. But mm. the the and you know what you said earlier, you said in the first episode about him being an emotional infant. He looks like an infant. He looks like a child yes. in the scene. Yes. hundred percent. She's breaking as we all do when we're like our walls are down and we're fully exposed and someone it, it, and by someone we we are attracted to, by someone we love, we can be reduced back to infancy um, because that's where we first discover love. I learned that in therapy, mm. that our first ideas of mm. love mm. come from us when we're infants. So it is stands to reason that we can be reduced to being infant-like uh, when we are in love because that's what we kind of unconsciously or subconsciously uh, resort to. I think it's a really good point. By the way, when complimented about the scene, James Ivory's response is, oh, we got lucky with that one. <laughs> As a good director should say. Yeah. Always, uh, you know, giving, in, credit, giving credit to someone else. Yeah. In the next scene, uh, Lena Headey informs Miss Kenton that she and Charlie are getting married mm -hmm. and that sure, they don't have any money. And she's like, well, you know, this could be a good career for you. And it's like, ah, we'll be fine. We're in love. <laughs> ah. And now we're with Stevens and Miss Kenton drinking cocoa in front of the fire. Yeah. And they're talking about these two staffers that are falling in love. And she's sure to be let down. Oh. Well, it's no use crying over spilt milk. Besides, we have far more important matters to discuss. Next week's meeting. Now, you know his lordship is planning an invitation tonight. Sorry? I've had a very busy day. Don't you realize that? I'm very tired. I'm very, very tired. Why is she so upset? Well, because of the rejection and because she sees young love yeah. blooming. And so for her, it's like, I've wasted my life here. I've wasted years here uh, pursuing something that will not happen for me. So her reaction is uh, in that place, you know, a frustration, emotional reaction, and logically so. Um and Stephen's reaction to absolutely cut her off at that point is also his way of retreating once again from the responsibility of the decision he's made. He retreats rather than saying, what's wrong? What is going on here? Talk to me. Why are you so emotional? Why are you upset? Let's talk about this. He resorts to, oh, I didn't know bringing up stuff from the day was going to upset you like this. But you know what? We won't talk about it anymore. You know what? I'm out of here. You take care of yourselves. We'll, not, we'll just keep it. And then she retorts back. It's a, it's, it's, it's a great scene of power, right? Shifting power dynamics in the moment. He's trying to get, he's trying to move past this thing that she was like, she's really upset about. Uh, he's trying to move past it. She wants to talk about it, but he's not going to talk about it. So she gets mad that he wants to move on to talk about the day and it gets emotional. He says, well, well, if you're emotional, I just won't have these conversations anymore. I thought these conversations were great for us. Clearly they're not. I'm going to take off. And he's, she keeps saying, no, stop. No, I'm not saying that. And he leaves. And she, she says, well, I want my day off. I'm going to take my day off. So it's this shifting power throughout 
between the both. And it's the it's the ending of the relationship. That moment, Steve, that we just talked about, that scene is the high point of the relationship. Yeah. And everything is the devolution of the relationship after that. Well, and I, I, I agree with everything you said. And I think that, you know, the first rejection is with the book. And then this, because, and by the way, in the book, it's very clear they've been meeting for Coco every night for probably yeah. years. Yeah. This is their regular and probably their most personal and emotional time for either of them in the day. And he just goes, oh, and I love, and he even, he doesn't just say, let's not do this anymore. Yeah. He says, we'll communicate during the day if necessary by written note. <laughs> it is complete push away yeah i think there's two ways to think about stevens and i'm it's not a black or white issue mm. but one way is that he really isn't aware of what's going on around him to some degree that he's not a hundred percent consciously clear of why she's crying and he's not a hundred percent consciously clear of what's happening in germany mm-hmm. with the war the big and the little there's another way to look at it that he 100% knows exactly what's going on throughout all of this stuff mm-hmm. and how we decide on that, which to what degree does he know or not know to me determines to what, to, how you're going to feel about this guy. I'll, I'll um, throw a third one out there for you. Okay. Uh, I think that he doesn't want to know. Yes. So I think there's the, there's, there's not knowing there is knowing and that there is a consciously and actively deciding not to know. Not to find out, right? He doesn't ask about the Germany stuff. He doesn't ask uh, her about why she's upset or or he doesn't inquire to find out because he doesn't want to know. And his reaction to reject her in such a stronger way than he did in this, in the, with the book, he's saying, we'll just through written notes or only if we have to, we'll communicate is his way of trying to reclaim some kind of power in the situation as well for himself because he's probably upset at how at himself at how close he yeah. came to consummating that relationship I, I think that's what i think too but i also mm. think that the 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 position of not wanting to know implies that to some degree you know yes you know, because yes. you can't not want to know something that you don't know exists he True. knows bad things are happening in germany he right. knows that he is responsible for this he knows that he's in love with miss kenton and he's literally like closing that door in his brain mm-hmm to not have to deal with that truth. Yeah. He watches her from the window as she rides her bike away. Mm-hmm. He, and he know. I think he, you know, like he knows yeah. what he's doing. This is, um, the and we're in the pub with Mr. Ben <laughs> and we hear again, it kind of falls into something we've been talking about a lot, which is Mr. Ben didn't want to be in service because he didn't, he's felt, look, if I don't like something, I want to be in a position to say stuff it. The rights of the people to have their opinions, to be responsible for their own ideas. Yeah, it's the changing Uh, of the guard, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. But then I suppose I'm not a real professional, like Mr. Stevens. Again, this amateur professional thing. (laughs) Uh, By the way, one of the things that Emma Thompson said in the commentary track during this scene is she said that the writer, the screenwriter, Ruth Power Jahabvala, said... Anytime you want to change a line, let's talk about it. You're welcome to adjust lines. Wow. And Emma Thompson was like, well, you're the writer. You did this for the re- a reason. We should never change that. Mm-hmm. And both James Ivory and the screenwriter were like, no, you can change it. And the mm-hmm. actors were the ones saying, we're not changing a word, which I find yeah. really interesting. <laughs> and rare. Yeah. And respectful on both sides. True. You know? True. Um, 
And he says he doesn't want to go back in service. And he talks about starting a little shop or a boarding house in the West Country and asks if he can get her another shandy. Um, do you like a shandy? Uh, I've never had a shandy and I can't imagine I would ever order a shandy, but sure. It sounds delicious to me. It's a it's a beer and lemon soda. Okay. Mixed together. <laughs> um, and at first she says no. And then she says yes. And now we're outside. Here's a funny one, John. While walking out of the pub, you'll notice that Emma Thompson stumbles a little bit into Mr. Ben's arms. Yes. Do you want to know why Emma Thompson did that? Cobblestones? She said, this is my godfather moment. (laughs) When Apollonia stumbles into Michael Corleone's arms. Except they were actually in love. And Miss Kenton (laughs) and Mr. Ben, you could argue, were probably never actually in love. I just think it's hilarious that the thing that we spent like months on <laughs> that I found a, a reference oh, to in, the, in the next perfect. film. Yeah. Supposing someone was to ask you if you'd like to come in on a small boarding house by the sea. And she doesn't know. And then he uses the name Sally, which she says that people called her when she's a kid. He says, he says, suppose it wasn't theoretical, Sally. Mm-hmm. And then the kiss that she didn't have with Mr. Stevens, she has with Mr. Ben. Yeah. Outside in the rain. Emma Thompson says that she is desperate for a shag <laughs> at this moment. <laughs> That's her description. It's a very passionate kiss, and she pulls away, and she rides off in the rain on her bike. There's a very weird scene with Lord Darlington in his bedroom, just really upset Everything is weighing on him. He's, you know, and you see the Jewish girls and the wars and everything. And he's so he's not sleeping in his bed. He's sleeping in a camp bed. He's set up in front of his bed. He's just obviously wrecked. Hmm. Mr. Uh, Mr. Cardinal shows up out of the blue. You know, says, oh, I've, I, I've gone and got myself in a bit of a mess. Can you put me up for the night? Um, and then starts asking questions. It's like, oh, what's going on tonight? Is there a special occasion? I am unable to help you there, sir. And then Stevens goes to talk to Miss Kenton because we have Miss Cardinal here and we have to deal with it. I shall see to it before I leave. Oh, you're going out this evening. Did he know she was going out this evening? Of course he knew. Yeah, absolutely. We agreed that Thursday is my day off. But of course, if you should need me urgently, it's... No, it's perfectly all right, thank you. Dude, ask her to stay. Yeah, yeah. Well, she's given him one last chance. Yeah. One last chance here. The man I'm going to meet tonight, you know him, Mr. Ben. Oh, yes, Mr. Ben, of course. Yes. He has asked me to marry him. Now she is the tiger under the table. Yeah. There's a big event going on again, just like before. Dad is dying, and there's a huge important event going on, and he has to put his emotions about Dad aside to deal with the big event. And yeah. now Mr. Cardinal has showed up because there's some other big important thing about to go on, and he's going to put his emotions aside. Yeah, And Miss Kent, she's given him every chance. I thought you should be informed of the situation. Yes, sir, thank you. That is most kind of you, Miss Kenton. And she's near tears, and he says, well, I trust you have the most pleasant evening, Miss Kenton. Yeah. And she leaves. Then we see some cars arrive, and out come some obviously very important people. Probably Neville Chamberman and Lord Halifax are showing up. Mm. And some Germans showed up. Stevens is dealing with them and the Germans, this is just so crazy, but they're looking at the art yeah. in this house. They're like, casing the place. Like exactly. That's exactly what they're yeah. doing. Yeah, we're going to have this sometime. Um, yeah. Terrible. And Stevens, when he's alone for a moment, he checks his watch, which is exactly what he did 
when his father was dying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like this moment to compose himself and focus on what he has to focus on. Right. And the, the big people are doing some big negotiation. That's basically about, don't worry about Czechoslovakia. (laughs) Nobody should die because, you know, because of this Czechoslovakia thing. And they say, Hitler is a man of peace. And then there's some some bobbies there because they've been running security and Miss Kenton came back and they grabbed her. Yeah. <laughs> it's just crazy. What was that all about, do you think? I think literally it's like the president was there and the Secret really? Service was all around. Okay. And she wrote that's yeah, that's exactly what I think was going okay. on. Okay. Right. Um and it is that's in the book too, by the oh, way. Oh, okay. All right. Um and then we have this conversation. I trust you had a pleasant evening. Did you have a pleasant evening? Yes, thank you. Good. Would you like to know what took place? I have to return upstairs. There are events of the utmost importance taking place in this house tonight. Even though the most important event in his life happened on her date. Yeah. Here's an interesting thing. They did this scene. They shot it. Mm -hmm. And James Ivory felt that um, Anthony Hopkins was not intelligible. He couldn't understand what he was saying. Oh, wow. And he asked him to do it again. Mm-hmm. And they had a huge fight. Wow. Hopkins was like, I did it. I did it. It's not going to be better. I'm not doing it again. And <laughs> Ivory goes, I couldn't understand what you're saying. We have to do it again. And Hopkins, who sounds like is the, you know, lovely and easy to yes, work of with, course, of course. just lost it, shouting on the set, went to his dressing room, would not come out. <laughs> Emma Thompson had to talk him down and get him to come back to set. And what they said was <laughs> it was a really draining and emotional scene. I'm you sure. Know? sure. And, and what's interesting, too, is apparently in this first take where he was not intelligible, Anthony Hopkins cried, oh. like had tears. Wow. And James Ivory, when he finally got him back, said, never do that again. Wow. And and what I find so interesting about this, and, and you can see he's very restrained in yeah, this yeah. scene. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think I think this is both people totally doing their job. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Anthony Hopkins internally was feeling what he was feeling. He was going through it emotionally fully yeah. as an actor should. Yep. And the director was standing back and going, I can't understand what you're saying. And if you cry, which I agree with that, if he cried in that scene, yeah. it actually ruins the scene. Yep, it's it's the it's the restraint that's making it work, and so, mm-hmm. yeah, they had a big fight, <laughs> and then they got went and got what's the right scene. Well, sometimes you've got to, and I'm sure you've experienced this, Steve, on sets or not on sets, but sometimes you gotta, you know, let the tea kettle uh, explode a little bit, and then, uh, you know, or t- was it open the pressure of valve a little bit, and let the air out, and then everybody can come back to normal because it seems like such a difficult tightrope to walk to create a film like this and create a character like this uh, needing to blow off a little bit of steam in a certain moment because you're essentially conveying how much it's taking out of you to play these scenes um, and how much it's challenging you is okay. As long as it's a healthy way to do it, uh, it's okay. And if everybody can come back to normal, understand. This is obviously a huge and long conversation, but for those of you out there who don't work in this industry, who've never acted, who've never worked with actors. Yeah. You should know that for the, and you're the actor and I'll defer to your opinion, but for the most part, if you're going to play an emotional scene to some degree, you have to feel those emotions. Oh yes. Oh, you know, yes. You, you're not just pretending to be upset. Mm-hmm. You're upset. 
yeah. you know? Yeah. It like, and it can be draining and emotional and complicated. Absolutely. It takes so much out of you for sure. She, she tells him that she accepted the proposal yeah. and he says, congratulations. Am I to take it that after all the years I have been in this house, you have nothing else to say to me? You have my warmest congratulations. <laughs> His, I, I just say, to, I can't explain what he's doing. <laughs> the performance <laughs> is so incredible. It like, is. He's, he's doing, he's so little and they're so emotional. It's completely restrained. He's not going to give her what she's looking for because he cannot surrender his pain. He cannot, he cannot. It, it would cause destruction internally for him that he may not recover from. And then she, I will say, lashes out at him in yeah. what is the most brutal way to attack Mr. Stevens, oh, sure. which is his dignity. Did you know you have been a very important figure? For Mr. Ben and me. Oh, in what way? I tell him stories about you, about your habits, about your mannerisms. He finds it very funny, especially when I show him how you pinch your nose when you put pepper on your food. That always has us in stitches. And again, he takes it in hmm. and says, Doesn't indeed. <laughs> Well, oh, please. Excuse me, Miss Kenton. Good And he walks away. He absorbs it. And, and once again, and you know, a little bit of fault on Miss Kenton's side as well. I don't know. She may be a little bit more emotionally mature than Mr. Stevens, but not that much more mature than Mr. Stevens. She defaults to this attack again to reclaim power after she's surrendered her vulnerability to him so she attacks him in a way to kind of uh, put herself back in the superior position in that interaction and it's a uh, uh it's it's unfortunate because she's been so uh just someone to cheer for and in that moment you just feel a little bit like oh why why would you do that but then you understand of course because she's in pain you know from his just kind of nonchalance nonchalant reaction to her being uh uh married or get going to be married the news of it you know well, and I think I think what it is is Stevens to some degree set the rules of the relationship. Like we're never going to go past these barriers, and she is abiding by them and then using them against him. And you know what I mean? Like, right, right. like if he were a more open person when she first met him, we would right. never have gone down this path. She would have been a more open person with her, right? With him, you know. But the real mind fuck is: would she have been as attracted to him? That is a fantastic question, right? And I think the answer is no. Yeah, I think so too. Sometimes we are, we chase the things we can't have because we don't think we're worthy of them. So we choose things that we can't have. So it reinforces that narrative within ourselves. And if anyone's listening, I had to discover that for myself in therapy, in relationships. If you go after people who are taken or who are unavailable, who are not giving you that emotional satisfaction that you're looking for, it is because you don't feel that you're worthy of it. And so you have to kind of navigate that within yourself. And I think in this situation, same thing. I think Miss Kenton was in this relationship with Mr. Stevens because him being unavailable to her 
was attractive to her for yeah. whatever reasons, you know, and Miss, Mr. Bent is all about her and she's not attracted to him. So, so if you look at this psychologically, there are some self-worth issues that Miss Kenton never negotiates, never navigates, never really resolves. And it leads to the impasse uh, that we have at the end of the movie, her decision, you know? Totally. I, I agree with all that. And I also think that, that Mr. Stevens with all of his control is an impressive person in the way that Mr. Ben is not. Yeah, agreed. You know uh, what I mean? Yeah, professional versus amateur. Yes, agreed. Yeah. Um, we're with Mr. Cardinal, Hugh Grant, mm-hmm. who really wants to talk to Stevens. And he says, Yeah, we've been friends a long time, haven't we? Do you think that Cardinal actually considers Stevens a friend? <laughs> a friend in the loosest sense of the word that you can use it, yes. Associate more than anything else. I, so that's what I thought too. And then I just suddenly, just before we started recording today, I went, wait a minute. So Cardinal's dad dies. Yeah. We don't quite know how long ago. Mm-hmm. He might have been a little kid in this house, in this very formal house. Good point. He might have feelings about Stevens, who mm-hmm. was there for him in a way that, <laughs> that his father and godfather weren't. Probably. So there might yeah. be feelings of affection that are somewhat stronger. And he really wants to talk to him. Yeah. And he really wants to discuss what's happening in the other room. And we get into the exact, literal, word-for-word lines of dialogue that happen when Stephen's father's died. You're right. Yes, I'm perfectly all right, thank you. Not feeling unwell, are you? No, no. A little tired, perhaps. That is exactly what he said when mm-hmm. he wasn't dealing with the emotions of the death of his father. Right. He tries to get him to sit down, and finally he orders him to sit down. And to which I'm like, well, if you have, if you're sitting down because someone ordered you to, you're still being a servant. Yeah, I can't sit down, damn it. And then Cardinal goes off on what's going on in the other room. That basically they're making a deal with the German ambassador, and and he can't. And he keeps asking Stevens, like, don't you care? Aren't yeah. you curious? It is not my place to be curious about such matters. And supposing, supposing I told you that um, his lordship is presently trying to persuade the prime minister to enter into a pact with that bunch of criminals in Berlin. Stephen says, I'm certain his lordship is acting in the highest and noblest motives. You do please realize that his lordship's been the most valuable pawn that the Nazis have in this country over the last few years, it, precisely because he is good and honorable. This is important, right? And this, this what the interaction, well, first of all, Cardinal to me is... is not someone you should definitely like feel that warm to because in this moment he's using Stevens to get information. He's essentially doing to Stevens what is going to be done to him by the Lord Darlington's pals, uh, you know, when they constantly question him about what he knows and what he doesn't know. Uh, and it's really interesting to see what the movie is saying in this moment. Is the movie using Stevens as a representative of people who either ignore uh, or choose to ignore uh, or blissfully unaware of the nefarious tactics that movements use to take advantage of people's uh, sentiments or empathy or um, goodness in order to advance their nefarious goals. And is that what the movie is saying in this scene? Because you feel for Stevens that Cardinal is grilling him like this. Yeah. Uh, you know, and you feel like, why are you doing this? He's just a servant. He just wants to blissfully do his job and blah, blah, blah. But by the other side of it is, it seems like the movie is saying, you can't be this because people like this, as you just mentioned the quote earlier, Steve, these are the people who stand by while this evil takes power. 
while this evil moves into a position to be able to do things that it does. Um, and it's an interesting moment. And it left me with a lot to think about as I was watching it this time, as I think about our world, you know, yeah. and and how many people are so afraid to call out their parents or their family members or their friends for some of their uh, more troubling points of views or racist or misogynistic points of views or, you know, troubling points of views because they don't want to have a problem. They don't want to cause a fight. They want to kind of ignore it or they think there's no way to get through to them. And I think that's in a way indirectly complicit to creating these movements or these movements getting stronger in, in, in uh, our world. I think this is what makes this a really good movie. Yeah. Because, because at no point, do we other than the Germans who came in and started casing the place? Right. There's, no, there's no bad guys in this movie. Right. Like Lord Darlington is a is a good guy, an honorable yes. guy. He's trying to do what's right. He wants peace. You know, is that Stevens is trying to do what he thinks his duty is to do. Yeah. You know, Cardinal is trying to do what's right. And Cardinal doesn't hate Lord Darlington. Far no. from it. He no. loves him. That's what makes yeah. this so hard. And I think that presenting this complexity mm-hmm. and presenting all these gray areas is what makes the movie good. And it's also it's more realistic, you know? Yeah, agreed. Things aren't easily divided up into good guys and bad guys. There's a moment I love where Cardinal says... Well, look, I, you know, I hardly have to tell you what, how I feel toward this lordship. I, I care about him deeply, deeply. And I know you do too. Yeah. And Stephen says... In a very odd, emotional way. Yes, I do indeed. I think in that moment he is thinking about Miss Kenton. Mm. He's okay. saying, yes, I care about her deeply. Yeah. Okay. Of course, I have no way of knowing, but that's what I think his beat work was. He's being tricked, Stephen. Don't you see what's going on here? Are you as deluded as he is? <laughs> and I think that in this moment, yes, yeah, Stephen's as, as loony as he is. <laughs> The woman he loved just told him she's marrying someone else, and he knows that he could have her. Yeah, he yeah. is as loony as he is. Good point. And then Cardinal says, "Oh, I've really offended you." No, not at all, sir. Not at all. Mm-hmm. And then he says, "You must excuse me," and he leaves. Yeah. Stevens walks down the stairs, and there is Miss Kenton, and she says, "Very, very upset." You mustn't take anything I said to heart. I was very foolish a little while ago. Mm. And he could say, that's okay. Or I'm sorry too. Or let's talk about this. Instead, he says, Miss Kenton, I haven't taken anything you said to heart. In fact, I can hardly recall anything you did say. Oh, man. Yeah, that's just him pushing back. This is him, you know, again, like I said, it's the the power. It's all about power. And in that moment, he's trying to reclaim it back from her. Because obviously he has thought about everything she said. As you just said, Steve, there's intentions to what he's doing that's uh, related to her in these interactions with Cardinal. Just occurred to me that Cardinal is sort of saying that Lord Darlington is ridiculous and is on her and his adherence to all this stuff. And it's leading him to making horrible decisions. Mm. And that Stevens, what did, what did Miss Kenton do? She mocked him for all of these honorable, you know, his professionalism, essentially. There's a very interesting parallel there. If you listen to Anthony Hopkins voice, he's right on the edge of breaking in this scene. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he tells her to, you know, to go to bed. You must be very tired. I think if she doesn't leave right then he breaks. Possibly. Yeah, yeah, great point. Yep. Um, we're in the wine cellar. 
He pulls out a what looks like a ridiculously old bottle of wine. He walks upstairs and drops the bottle. Oh, damn. Damn. Karen gasped. The bottle <laughs> drops. So did he. It, it's it's so moment. shocking. Yeah. 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 And he comes upstairs. By the way, the bottle is made out of wax. That's how they do that. <laughs> um, and he comes upstairs and he hears sobbing. And he touches the door and we see his feet moving forward. We see Miss Kenton. She's on the floor. She straightens up and says, yes, Mr. Stevens. And he could have an emotional connection with her at this moment. He could say something. And he says, Miss Kenton, I've been wanting to tell you. It's the small alcove outside the breakfast room. It's the new girl, of course. But I find it has not been dusted in some time. And she says, I'll see to it, Mr. Stevens. Thank you. I knew you would have wanted to be informed. And he exits. Mm. And she cries. By the way, they did this. They did one take. <laughs> and and <laughs> Hopkins said to best. James Ivory, uh, that's it. We can't do it any better. And he said, Okay. <laughs> There's a time to listen and a time not to listen to your actors. And he stands outside her door for a while and then he walks away. So in the book, he does not go in the room. Oh, interesting. And it's written really specifically. The way it's written in the book is that he kind of is thinking, I can remember standing outside her door in the corridor. And then for some reason, the memory is very clear to me. And I remember having a very very strong certainty that behind that door she was crying even though i heard nothing and i knew that if i opened the door that i would see miss kenton crying and that all he had to do was open up the door and he remembers standing there in the hallway he doesn't know how long and he goes maybe it was it probably was only for a few seconds but it felt like a very long time and then he walked away right And that is to me like the difference with the book is the book is just so much sadder because he, he's so passive. Yeah. You know, the scene, the scene is actually crueler because he goes in and doesn't acknowledge her crying. That's what I think. And I, 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 I will throw this out there. Maybe people get upset. I mean, so be it. So fuck it. But like, I think a female director does not direct this scene to have him stand over her in such a powerful position as she cries. It's almost a submissive position. It's almost fellatio position, Steve. And I oh. think that is not a... I, I, it's the one scene in the movie that I was like, ah, I fucking hate that you made this decision. Uh, and I love this movie. But in retrospect now, looking at it, especially with the eyes of 2021, when you're more aware of these things, I think this scene would have worked better if he keeps his distance from her but coming upon her like he's this giant uh monster almost i i just don't see the point of that to be honest with you because it puts her in a some even more submissive position that she does not need to be in in this moment of vulnerability and tears so. it, it, it's funny because i actually dislike the scene too i, mean, I don't mm-hmm. dislike it they're brilliant brilliant actors oh, of, course, of course of course beautifully filmed scene but uh, what I don't like about it is that I think this is the, to me, this scene is like, why does Miss Kenton like this guy? He's just horrible. It's a great you point. know, the guy standing outside in the hall 
yeah. who no thinks he might she was probably crying but doesn't know for sure and doesn't come in yeah is not as mean as the guy that goes in and stands over her while she's crying and says nothing to help her right and and, and also that guy is way more delusional i mean it's yes. just it's a very different thing yeah. because part of this is like why does miss ken like this guy you yeah, know the, yeah and maybe maybe that's a ham-handed attempt for what's coming next when she leaves that we're supposed to feel like, you know, against him a little bit. So I don't know. But yeah, sorry. Man. Um, Go ahead. We're back to the present. He's driving. He pulls out some suitcases and we see older Emma Thompson getting ready. And then she's sitting in a parlor and who walks in but Mr. Ben. This yeah. scene, by the way, is not in the book. Okay. And she doesn't want to talk to him. She... We hear that they never did open up that boarding house that they were going to. Yeah. And then he says that Catherine is expecting, their daughter is expecting, and she reacts. And suddenly she was pushing the guy away, pushing the guy away, and now they're yeah. coming together again because mm -hmm. they're going to be grandparents. Cut yourself shaving. Can't seem to do anything right these days. And she pats his arm. Mm -hmm. I love this bit of acting is as she pats his arm, he tries to take her hand and she dodges it. Yeah. Um, but I think if this scene doesn't happen, the next scene is entirely different. Of course. Yeah. And that's why this scene happens. Yeah. That's the tragedy of this relationship. But also, I also sense that I think I wonder if Mr. Ben knew that she was going to meet Mr. Stevens. Maybe he sensed in conversations over the years there was an unrequited love there. And so what he shows up all of a sudden, right before she's about to go meet him with this news, we're going to be grandparents. And then he even says like, we, you know, we, I could pick you up uh, in the bus and we could go together in a, in a desperate attempt to stay with her. And he may even have cut himself on purpose. So that mm, she looks wow. and sees that's how nefarious men can be. Steve. <laughs> you know, this, Oh, well, both sides of the spectrum, honestly, in different ways, but you know, men can be nefarious when they're trying to get a woman back. They will put themselves through anything to try to get her back. So I would not have put it past Mr. Bent, who, as you say, is completely different than Mr. Stevens in his approach to life, uh, that he would do these kinds of desperate tactics to try to keep her with him uh, because he is absolutely um, lost without her. Right. By the way, uh, none of the Mr. Ben scenes are in the book. See, there's a reason for that shit. Because anyway, you're yeah. always you're always in Stevens's perspective. So if he's no. not there, good point. Then because these are his memories in the book. Right, right. Um, Miss Ben, Miss Mrs. Ben shows up and meets Stevens. Yeah. And this is what we've been waiting for. Yeah. Um, and at first it's a little awkward. It's a little small talky. And then they dissolve. And I love that there's, they're at some hotel and there's like a dance going on. And the song that's playing is Blue Moon. Blue Moon. <laughs> Which is such a different, like that to me is what really hits of like, oh, we're an entirely different time. Yeah. The Blue Moon world and the 1930s pre-World War II world are just miles apart. You know, yeah. yeah. Um, and we hear a little bit of details. We hear about that there was this libel suit that the that Lord Darlington was, you know, called a traitor and he lost the case. Yeah. Um, and it broke his heart. And then she asks about his godson, and he says, yeah. "Killed in the war." Mm. And right in this moment, the waitress comes up. So we can't deal with that emotion, right? For that, right? right. 
And then he says, I know you remember Darlington Hall in its best days. And perhaps the good days are starting again now that Mr. Lewis has taken up residence and uh, Mrs. Lewis is expected to arrive from America shortly. Very fortunate to have you there to run the house for them. Now, I love that he calls her Miss Kenton, corrects himself to Mrs. Ben. I'll tell you frankly, Mr. Stevens, I had been thinking of going back in service. That expression, going back in service, is like, it's not entering into slavery. That's not... But there's like a weird, that's not like, I've been thinking about going back to work. Right, right. Going back in service is different. And then she says, but it would have to be here because she's going to be a grandmother. Yeah. And there's only the slightest of pauses. And he says, Mm -hmm. yes, of course. Mm -hmm. In that moment, he knows his life is over. Yes. Yeah. The life with her at least is over. Yes. Well, what other, that's it. You know, for yeah. him, you know what I mean? Like right, his, his life is empty. Mm-hmm. And just like in everything else, he just goes, yes, of course. <laughs> and then she says this thing, and this is directly out of the book. When I first left Arlington Hall all those years ago, I never realized I was really, truly leaving. I believe I thought of it as simply another ruse, Mr. Stevens, to annoy you. <laughs> I was a shock to come out here and find myself actually married. For a long time, I was very unhappy. But then Catherine was born. The years went by, and one day, I realized I loved my husband. You see, there is no one, Mr. Stevens, no one in the world who needs me as much as he does. How does that contrast with Mr. Stevens? Yeah, Mr. Stevens doesn't need her. And that's what's interesting in the situation, right? She desperately wanted him to need her. But in the end, he doesn't. And so but, is that one of the reasons why she pulled away the way she does at the end? Yeah. But he does. Well, yes, you know but what not I mean? overtly, right. Exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. like he doesn't need her. He's not going to cut himself shaving or not deal with all the no. stuff that obviously Mr. Ben can't deal with. Mr. Stevens could deal with everything. Right. But he needs her. <laughs> everything you outside know? of emotions, yes. Exactly. But still, there are times when I think, what a terrible mistake I've made with my life. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we all have these thoughts from time to time. <laughs> he has these thoughts all the time. Yes. Now they're sitting on a bench and they're on a pier watching the lights come on and people applaud. Yeah. And they talk about this. People always cheer when the lights come on. For most people, the evening is the best part of the day. Mm. The part they most look forward to, Mr. Stevens. And he says, is that so? And he's staring off into space, just lost. Mm-hmm. And she asks him, what do you most look forward to? Oh, uh, getting back to Darlington Hall, principally, and straightening out our staff problems. <laughs> That's a lie. Yeah. Yes, uh, always was work, work, more work. And will continue to be so, I have no doubt. To me... There always was work. There's always going to be work. And there continues to be work mm-hmm. is like my life has always meant nothing. It means yeah. nothing now. It will continue to mean nothing. Mm-hmm. There'll be no change because there will be no Miss Kenton. Right. Well, he's been around that hall long enough, Steve, that he is the hall. Yeah. No Miss Kenton. There's always work to be done. And he's been around so long like that hall so in essence there is there's symbiotic in their 
I don't know, just they're symbiotic. You know, they're connected in that way. Uh, young people will come and go, but he will always be there. And that hall will always be there. And then the music starts, that score yeah. that is just... Oh. Richard Robbins, we haven't really talked about it very much. We've been so remiss, and I and I texted in full of disclosure. I texted Steve about this, and so now that we're near the end of a, this, uh, this our review of this or analysis of this movie, I have to say this: the score is so phenomenal, and I think I take it upon myself uh, the guilt I feel that we didn't mention the score more because I, I'm not a score whore like other people. It's <laughs> not that I don't notice the score, right? I always hear the score and appreciate the score but there are only certain ones that really kind of get inside me and are so essential to the movie uh, and i don't mean cues like back to the future or whatever i or indiana jones i mean like just scores throughout the whole movie and the mission has been one of them yeah, uh, the much. most the most recent the invisible man benjamin wolfish's score was stellar and this watching this movie again i could not help but be so moved by the score, impressed by the score, blown away by the score. And it is so, so essential in a movie about restraint to have a score that is a little more not restrained. And it really helps you to feel what is happening in all the scenes throughout the movie. And this scene is no different, you know? Richard Robbins says that this was the most um, underscoring he did of dialogue. Like normally his style was you, you stay away from the dialogue. Score, score, score. Yeah. Then they're going to have a dialogue scene, then score. And the, the score has this sort of endless circular quality. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like a memory. Like a memory that keeps returning and returning. Like emotions that won't go away. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's an incredible score. It's in the rain. Stevens is with an umbrella. We're waiting for for Miss Kenton's bus or Mrs. Ben's bus. You must try to do all you can to make these years happy ones for yourself and for your husband. We may never meet again, Mrs. Ben. That is why I'm permitting myself to be so personal. If you will forgive me. He's still the perfect butler in a way. Yeah. 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 And she's crying now, crying uh -huh. in the rain, which is always good in, in a movie. Yeah. And then the bus comes on time for once. <laughs> We're disappointed. If we had one more moment, then something could happen. And the music is very dissonant, and then it cuts out. Thank you, Mr. Stevens, and thank you so very much for coming. It was so very kind of you. And she gets on the bus, and we see their hands holding mm. each other's hands. Yeah, it's a great close-up. And she slips out of his hands, yeah. And then we see her on the bus pulling away, and her face... The tears as the bus pulls away is remarkable. But it's also like, why are you showing the tears now when you're when you're on the bus pulling away? Why not show the tears to him before? And maybe he hasn't earned it, and maybe that's why she doesn't. You know, and I think she's crying for more than just the loss of Steve. The life of it's the loss of the life she could have had, and also maybe feels a bit of guilt that she didn't make it happen herself, didn't force it somehow to happen. Uh, and now she really has to say goodbye to it because maybe in her mind it had been always this possibility, you know, as things were falling apart with Mr. Ben, even when Catherine was born and, you know, there was a little more life, you know, because she said for so many years I was desperately unhappy, right? Why was she end up? Because she was with the man, she a man she didn't love, really love. Uh, and so she had a baby and that kind of gave And how many relationships are saved by children or how many relationships are stay together because they have a kid that happens. And 
Sure. And so with her in that moment, I think she's crying for more than just the loss of Mr. Stevens. It's the loss of that escape, that possibility, that thing that maybe she has fantasized uh, fantasized about in quiet moments out in the in the backyard or by herself in the parlor room or whatever that gives her a little bit of hope to keep going, that there's a possibility out there that could come to pass one day. But now it's really gone. So in essence, her tears are mourning the final, yeah. uh, the, the resting place of this love, you know, the coffin. I What I try to imagine is how confident was Miss Kenton mm-hmm. of Mr. Stevens' feelings for her? Did she, was she, and it's somewhere between she was certain that he was in love with her but would never say mm-hmm. anything to she was certain that he was not in love with yeah. her. And I think it's vacillated throughout not only their time together but throughout the years. Yeah, yeah. You know, like at the moment where she's standing in front of him and his hands near his face and she's holding the book, she's 100% certain that he feels as she feels. Mm-hmm. But then when he doesn't, he just says, oh, congratulations, and has no other reaction then maybe she he doesn't feel this at all. Yeah. And I think in this moment of taking her his hand and him saying goodbye, I think in this moment she's certain that he does love right. her. Right. You know what I mean? And that's what makes it. But but I, I mean, I can't imagine. Can you imagine 30 years of your life being in love with this person that gives you nothing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, nothing. Right. Um, well, at this moment. Uh, yeah. Uh, sorry, do you have something? Maybe I don't know if it's. Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe I don't. I don't know where I feel on that. If is it nothing? I don't know, because he, you know, like you said, he set the terms. In essence, she agreed to the terms by being a part of this game they played. But in the end, doesn't give her what she wants. I think, or what she needed. I think might be a better, more correct. Because I mean, in his own emotionally stunted way, he was connecting with her in some way and between the lines she could sense his affection for her right and so but i don't know you might be right maybe it's that you know maybe you're right i just don't know 100 percent where i stand on it you you know what here's here's where i think i stand at this Mm. moment which is that i think obviously both the book and the movie have very critical things to say about mr yes I also think there's a way to go to have some fairly critical things to say about Miss. Yes. Because what the hell are you doing? (laughs) You know, like move on. (laughs) Like the guy, the guy's not there for you. True. Very true. And that's what I meant earlier. Walk away. That's what I meant earlier. It's certainly something within her that she has not come to terms with or resolved with herself, you know, and how many people get into those relationships because of that. So, yeah. By the way, when they're screening this movie for the studio, the, at this moment, the president of Columbia yells during the screening, get off that bus. <laughs> <laughs> and the next thing he says is when she doesn't get off the bus, he goes, there goes $50 million. <laughs> <laughs> yep, executives, what do you expect? <laughs> yeah. When Stevens gets into the car, there's just a look of total devastation yeah. and shock on his face yeah. because he knows there's no hope. His life is, that's it. Um. Lewis is coming down the stairs. By the way, I think I mentioned before, the guy who there's there's Senator Lewis, who's this drunk in the 20s, who makes the amateur professional speech. The guy who buys the house is a different guy. 
And it's a guy who's not a particularly nice guy. He wants the status of, he's an American who wants the status of having the real English manor with the real English butler. Mm-hmm. No, fair. And he is disappointed in Stevens, particularly because at one point Stevens, when he, he brings over some fancy guests mm-hmm. and the woman who is asking Stevens questions, trying to determine if he's the real deal right. as a British butler. And he denies that he worked for Lord Darling. Right. And then his boss yells at him. It's like, what, who did you, did you, why did you say that to her? You told me you did work for Lord Darlington. You made me look like an ass. <laughs> and it kind of yells at Stevens. Yeah. Yeah. But in this, we have the lovely Christopher Reeve who comes down the stairs. My Lord, Stevens, you're really getting things going here. This is wonderful. Thank you, sir. We're talking about the new housekeeper and that she was an ex um, matron. And he says, A matron? Huh? Yes, sir. Huh. Well, it sounds like she'll know how to keep us from misbehaving, huh? I certainly hope so, sir. Good. Good, Stevens. Very good. You made a joke. Yeah, and maybe, yeah, maybe there is a possibility of a, a, you know, I don't know, a future less conflicted for him because this has been resolved in a way and he can finally let it go. As you just said, Steve, about Miss, uh, Miss, Miss Kenton with, for Mr. Stevens he can finally let this go. So there's a more looseness to him, possibly. I don't know. In the book, he is consistently thinking about banter and that his boss had tried to banter with him <laughs> and he couldn't banter back. And so he began listening to radio programs of comedy mm-hmm. to try to learn how to understand humor because he felt that now his job as a butler that the expectation of his employer was that he would be able to banter back. Mm-hmm. And so he's consistently like at the pub. And when he meets the doctor, he tries to make jokes and it never works. Now, this is where we had that banquet back in 35. Remember? You all stood up and delivered ourselves of our principles. God knows what I said. Sure got worked up about it though. What did I say anyway, Stevens? I'm sorry, sir. I was too busy serving to listen to the speeches. And they find a pigeon. And the pigeon flies into the fireplace. And the reason they did this was because this happened on a tech scout. They were looking at a, one of the buildings to shoot in and a pigeon flew into the building. Yeah. And James Irie found that really interesting. Um, by the way, when they decided to bring a pigeon into this ancient house, the National Trust was really stressed out. They're like, that pigeon better not poop. That pigeon better not. And they run around and they try to grab the pigeon. Finally, Lewis grabs it. Stevens opens the door. Amazing shot of him framed in the window. And we let the pigeon fly away free. And there's a slow dissolve to a helicopter shot. It's like the pigeon POV. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, as it flies away, is the end of the movie. What do you think it means, the pigeon flying away? It seems to me to be hopeful. Yes. You know, like, the, you know, it's about freedom. It's about moving on. It's about no longer being trapped. Mm-hmm. That's what it seems to me. And part of it is having read the book. Here's how the book mm-hmm. ends. So the place where the lights turn on, that he's sitting with Emma mm-hmm. Thompson, and they talk about people being, that, that scene is after... Emma Thompson has left or after, I'm sorry, after Miss Kenton has left and he's sitting alone. And then a stranger sits down next to him who it ends up was like a worked in service, but never in a big house. 
and they talk. And as Mr. Stevens is telling him about, uh, I was at Darlington Hall and blah, blah, blah. He just breaks down in tears wow. and starts weeping. And the guy kind of says, hey, no, it's, you know, it's okay. And he's like, I'm probably just tired. It's been a lot. I've been driving a lot. It's been a long day. And then he gets back. And, and they, that's where this idea comes up about people always looking forward to the evening, which I think is a metaphor for late the end of your yeah. life. People look forward to retiring, yeah. to settling down. And Stevens, of course, has nothing to look forward mm-hmm. to. And when he gets in his car, he thinks, I'm going to give that bantering thing a try. You know, I, I think I'm going to get good at bantering and then I'll, and it's just a totally delusional moment of him going back to who he has always been. It's just, I'm just going to do a good job being a butler. So very sad ending of the book. Yeah. Whereas this pigeon flying away is pretty hopeful, I mm-hmm. think, ending of the film. Mm-hmm. What do you think it means? It's weird. I I, I can totally see the hopefulness. Um, but it's Christopher Reeve who picks up the pigeon. and whereas. Uh, Stevens the whole time is telling him to be careful what not to do and blah, blah, blah. It's Christopher Reeve, who is the more um, willing to yeah. put his hands on and, and let, so maybe in a way it's the, it's Christopher Reeve's influence that may change uh, Mr. Stevens a little bit and may, you know, allow him to uh, spread his wings a little more. You know, and I think that's that's a, or it could be the symbolism that it's Miss Kenton, the memory of Miss Kenton finally being let go out of the house, out of Darlington Hall. That's a pause. She's flown away. She's the bird that got away. She's the bird that flew away from this place. Didn't want to be restrained from this place in this place anymore. And is finally with the final scene between them has been allowed to be let go from the hall and the memories of Mr. Stevens. I don't know. Maybe I think that's ish. What it ish, is. Yeah, but- ish is good. Yes. Ish I'll accept. Um, uh, by the way, the first cut of this film was three hours, and I and I love what oh! James Ivory says about that. He says, "You want to cut it down." He says, "Not just because no one will sit for a movie that long, Bullshit. but because right? okay, but this is what James I know, Ivory I know. says. He says, "But because you haven't done your job, you don't want to show anything that isn't good enough. You want to get rid of all the stuff that's not first rate." And that's what I think okay. too. Okay, and there's like I think you there's know. like 12 minutes of deleted scenes on YouTube for anyone who's out there listening to us who, who's curious to see what the stuff was that was cut. That you, you know. um, the the Columbia president was wrong. It was very successful. Mm-hmm. Made a lot of money. It was nominated for picture, director, actor, actress, screenplay, design, costumes, and score, mm-hmm. and it won nothing. <laughs> Incredible. Total blank. Tom Hanks won for Philadelphia that year, which is a, a spectacular performance. Yeah. Holly Holly Hunter won for Piano, okay. which I haven't seen in a long time, but it's a good movie. But the big thing is that's the year of Schindler's List. Right, 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 right. In yeah. no way, and I'll always, I'll go to my grave on this one, in no way is Tom Hanks' performance in Philadelphia better than Liam Neeson's performance or Anthony Hopkins' performance, in my opinion. Forrest Gump? Absolutely. Hell, I'd give it to him for saving Private Ryan. But Philadelphia, I just feel like he wasn't quite there. Kind of like uh, Tom Cruise in Born on the Fourth of July. He's just figuring out how to really deliver a dramatic performance. And I just don't think it was earned uh, for Philadelphia, in my opinion. And I feel like because a lot of people... Um, you know, are very uh, felt that the gay community was underserved. I think a lot of people voted uh, for Tom Hanks because of that performance and also because they actually probably enjoyed it as well. But I just feel like, in my opinion, I felt like this performance is is an acting class 
and so is Liam Neeson's in Schindler's List. I I saw Philadelphia in the theater when it came out. I've never seen it mm-hmm. since. I thought the, at the time the performance was amazing. I think Anthony Hopkins is minimalist performance is just uh, incredible you know john what are your final thoughts on remains of the day i you know every once in a while um doing the show we get to revisit a film that neither of us have seen in a bit and we get to discover the joy of it again and this is one of those films and i am so glad that we got a chance to walk back into darlington hall and get to know Mr. Stevens and Miss Kenton again, get to see the world through their eyes a little bit. Um, And I think it's an important film that gets lost in the shuffle. It gets dismissed as a period piece. It gets dismissed as a film from the early 90s when we were all into this English stuff. Uh, And in fact, I would argue it's the greatest of them. And yes, for all you Sense and Sensibility people and Howard Zen people and whatever, this is my favorite of those films of that time. It is because of the incredible performance from both Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson, the subtle, deft direction of James Ivory and that incredible score from Richard Robbins, uh, and overall the story, the tragic, unrequited love of these two people uh, that is that just resonates and is almost epic-like in its depiction in the movie. There is so much connections between this film and Dr. Zhivago that could live with inside you if you're watching both of these films uh, back to back. So um, it's a, such an incredibly film, a beautiful film and a gorgeous film uh, that if it touches you, if it connects with you, will resonate with you every time you watch it, no matter what age you are at. So that's my feelings. I think the thing I'm, I'm kind of struggling with a way to express is that there, there's a quality that Stevens is following that is called professionalism or dignity that I think is a truly admirable quality. Like if we said a person sacrificed, if, if a soldier dedicates mm. their life to protecting their country and ends up sacrificing their life for their country, that's a hero. Yeah, yeah. If you think of like mother Teresa dedicating her life to working with the poor, sacrificing, never taking time for herself, that's a hero. Although there's other things about the world of mother Teresa that are maybe more complicated, (laughs) but, but like, like these qualities of self-sacrifice are ones that are admirable. What's interesting to me is that the work Stevens is doing is exactly the same. Like if Lord Darlington had been Churchill, you know, had been, had been the hero and you had the Butler that was sacrificed everything they had to support that person, then we would say that he is a hero. You know what I mean? And that Stevens, from his position, he can't tell whether he's serving Lord Darlington or FDR or Adolf Hitler or Churchill. You know what I mean? The job is the same as the servant. Yeah. yeah. So I think what a, a what I think this film says to some degree is you got to look up and look around of what you are putting your life towards what is it like and that's why i think meeting the doctor and the people in the pub and mr ben who say hey i want to be able to say stuff yeah. it, is that those people say no i need to be active i need to know what's going on i can't blindly serve right. and the other thing that i think is that because there's the political part of this movie and there's the personal part the idea that he's sacrificing his personal part the death of his father and his true love for this mm-hmm. thing is actually for Stevens a total defense mechanism and is totally there to not deal with his emotions. Mm-hmm. You know, 
is that he is afraid to deal with his actual feelings. And so he retreats to duty in order to not deal with that stuff. And so it's like, because he could say, hey, don't marry him. I got to go do this thing right now. Let's talk. But he doesn't do that. You know, he could say, I cannot deal with my father's death right now. I have to do this thing, but then I am going to deal with it, (laughs) but he doesn't. So much strength goes in to protect him from the emotions he doesn't want to feel. He has indomitable will to not do what he is afraid of, which is actually feel stuff. Yeah. So that's what we think of the remains of the day. Of course, we'd love to hear what you think. Uh, You could visit us on Facebook, do a search for the cinephiles. You can subscribe to the show on Apple podcasts, on YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon, Audible, Google play, whole bunch of other places. Leave your comments on YouTube. Please, please, please continue to review the show on Apple podcasts. We're still just hovering right under a thousand reviews. And I would like to cross that thousand review line that seems important let's go people Um, get on it if you want to uh buy or stream the show you can do it on our website cinephiles.net through amazon prime you can um you can follow the show at cine underscore files on twitter the cinephiles podcast on instagram you can follow me at sr morris on twitter sr morris one on instagram john how about you can always follow me at the roca says on twitter and on instagram and uh, see all the stuff i'm doing there uh and also come on over to my youtube channel youtube.com slash john roca says and of course listen to me on the geek buddies podcast on the top 10 podcast uh and uh, assorted other places there you go and look for some new announcements coming possibly very soon we shall see Ooh, i like new announcements <laughs> i don't even know what these are so i'm very excited i'm i'm going to be waiting with all of you to find out what the new <laughs> announcements are and i think that is it for this week we will see you next time for another great film on the cinephiles Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 